Okay. It's my Christmas shirt. Where's my Christmas shirt? So we had a softball game yesterday. Uh, some some guys, some dudes from Elma got together and we did um, this Toys for Tots tournament. It's kind of how it went, just like that. Uh, we, we got there and uh, it was like 7.30 in the morning for the first game. So I blame us losing the first game on that because it was 7.30. We won the second one. It was like, what, 22 to 4 or something? 21 to 4. But they were like 90, so it doesn't count. <laughs> Oh, seven, there you go, and uh, and and then we, then we lost the, the third game, so we didn't play that hot. But I will tell you, we had we had one injury. It was a very testy, I mean testing time for for Brent Stanley over there. It's like seriously, it's like the third what third guy up in the first game that goes all bam, Brent's all <laughs> whack. Yes, and seriously, boom, it's like it's like. And, and then he gets the ball, and he's all, boom, second base, boom, double play. And we're just like, wow. And then he walks off the field, and he sits down. So, <laughs> you showed something. You showed something. Uh, our Christmas for Kids thing, just to let you guys know how this is going. Oh, that's totally going to be online. We're going to show, like, a softball and, like, a baseball next to each. I'm just kidding. Uh, okay, so uh, our Christmas for Kids thing, a couple weeks ago, uh, we had like 200 bucks, and the lady who's running it was a little a little worried. Last week, after last Sunday morning, uh, we now have like $1,400 uh, that you guys gave. So this is really cool. And uh, I'm supposed to watch it. You can still give today, I guess, if you want to. Pam wanted me to tell you that. But uh, she knows this lady at who works at the hospital, and she's going through some really tough stuff, and so we invited her and her son to be part of this program. And she started crying because no one has done something like this for her before, and so hopefully it'll be a great testimony for Jesus Christ in her life. So you guys are awesome. Is there any seats next to anybody? Uh, you get a couple. Or over there, you get a couple. Like two. You two. You two. We're not going to split up a family. Come on. Two. Anybody? Oh, no. Are you? Told me people feel uncomfortable. Sorry about that. Um, we are uh, doing the thing, this thing today called the Candle Blowout. And what we do is we help, there's a ministry in Thailand that gets girls out of prostitution. And when they come out of prostitution, they teach them some skills. And one of the skills they teach them is how to make candles. And so we go around, we have some ladies here that go to different craft and stuff and sell these candles that they make in Thailand. Uh, believe me, a little money here goes a long way over there. And so we have this storage unit that's a 10 by 10 floor to ceiling of boxes of these candles. And we're, we're being evicted from our storage unit. Uh, it's a long story. Not because it didn't pay the bill or anything, so we're, we're cool there. Uh, but we have to move storage units. And so we're doing this candle blowout. Uh, every candle, every size. I mostly say this for girls because chicks like candles and, you know, dudes are like, oh, it smells like girl, you know. So, but, uh, you know, there, there's candles back there. They're all five bucks. If you want to grab one, you know, you can grab as many or as little as you want. But it all goes to the Tamar Center, okay? It all goes to help these girls get out of prostitution in Thailand. So that's there. And don't forget to eat your cookies. Oh, oh, and you got the slide this time? Yes. Okay, so we're going to have a contest next week. Where's James? James always wears the ugliest sweater he can find. Stand up for me. Last week, last week was a lot worse. Okay, so what we have decided to do is we're going to do a contest. This, this is Becky Tamar's idea. We're going to do a contest. So next week, 
<laughs> if you're so inclined. Uh, wear the ugliest sweater you can find. James is going to be the judge. Okay? And then if you win, you get James, and his sweet ride is going to take you out looking at Christmas lights. <laughs> So put you in. He'll give you a pair of pliers to roll down the window with. <laughs> it's balling, yeah. So uh, he will take you out uh, and great fun. It'll be great fun. Hope you brought your cookies today. By the way, Did you bring. All right. Well, hopefully there's still enough back there to feed you all after Denise gets done with them. All right. Why don't you guys stay on there? You're in God's word. We'll get started. This is Proverbs 27, starting in verse 11. And it says this, Be wise, my son, and bring joy to my heart. Then I can answer anyone who treats me with contempt. Let's pray. Father, uh, this morning I ask that, that we as a people would be your children and that people would never view you with contempt because of how we live our lives, that people would give you honor and praise because we are children who follow our dad. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it really means to be your children. Amen. Have a seat. Okay, so we are going through the Gospel of John. Uh, we are on week 12 and still in chapter 4, which we go us. If you missed any of them, you can go to our website, ourelement.org. You can get them all online. They're all free. Uh, today we are going to look at children and fathers. Uh, so this is going to be a, kind of a message for men. So ladies, you can get a little bit out of this, but really I'm going to hammer on dudes today. Uh, in this case, we're actually looking at a son and his father. Now, how many of you have kids? Who has kids? Okay, now how many of you don't have kids, but you actually like kids, but not like in a creepy way? Okay, all right. Now, how many of you, if you, if you saw a kid who's hurting, or you would do almost anything for a kid? Anyway? Yeah. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. This is where we're going to go. We're going to get a dad doing something that's just kind of amazing for his son. Uh, and I think dads are missing from most of the cultural landscape today. So if you have a Bible open to John chapter 4. I'm going to hit a little background before we hit the story, but this is John chapter 4, verse 43. Here the page is turning. All right, John 4, 43. starts like this. Uh, it says, After the two days he left for Galilee. Now, I showed you a couple weeks ago that basically in Israel at this point, uh, it's kind of uh, split up like this. You have Galilee on top, Judea on the bottom, Samaria in, in the middle. Jews lived in Galilee and Judea, and rabbis and Jews typically did not go into or through Samaria because they were seen as half-bred, heretic, freaks kind of people. Jesus takes his journey, goes into the middle of Samaria, talks to a woman, spends some time with these people explaining his mission. Uh, essentially what happens at the end is there's this little town there called Sychar. They decide that they're going to almost plant a church there and they're going to worship Jesus. It's amazing that Jesus goes into the middle of this. So that's what Jesus does. He goes in here and after two days of doing that, it says after he went, left for Galilee, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. I think it's amazing that Jesus actually points this out because Jesus has a hard time sometimes doing ministry among his family and his friends. Uh, There's a joke in in churches that kind of goes like this. An expert is anybody who comes from somewhere else, right? Because it's like, oh, we don't know who they are, but they're from New York or Michigan or Iowa, anywhere but here, we think somebody comes from outside, ends up, and they get to become an expert. It doesn't matter that nobody there knows who they are as long as they are from out of town. 
So Jesus, you know, experiences this too. I, I think because they're so familiar with him, it's like, oh, that's Mary and Joseph's kid. He only scored two goals at the last soccer game. Uh, he struck out playing softball. They're so familiar with him that they begin to miss who he is. I love it when I get to go speak places because people are like, ooh, ah, and you guys are like, whatever. You know, you, <laughs> you don't care. I go someplace, they all pretend like I know what I'm talking about. I have this friend, her name is Kimber. And she lives in Utah, and she's with this church, and it's been going for a while, but it's really small, and, and they really want it to grow because they want to reach people. So she sends me an email, and she calls me, and she asks me questions because Element, uh, you know, we started a while ago, and we've, like, quadrupled in size from where we started, like, nine months ago. And so she goes, what's the secret? Like, there's, like, a secret, you know. <laughs> I'm, like, got my 37 spices, and I'm hoarding them or something. And I go, what's the secret? And I go, Jesus. And she's all, no, no, really. And I go, Jesus. <laughs> I said, that's what it is. I, I want people to know and follow who Jesus is. And I said that we do this in what's called a missional ecclesiology, that I intend for every single one of you to understand that you are a missionary in the culture where you live. You, by being a part of your job or your neighborhood or wherever you are, you are part of that culture, which means you are a missionary in that culture. There's this, there's this bizarre thing that people think that missionaries just go over there. They're all sent somewhere else. No, we are all missionaries. We are all sent. And so I explain this to her, and I write it all out in this email to her about what it means, and she gives it to her pastors. And I go, be careful with that, because a lot of pastors are like, oh, give me somebody else's stuff, and they get all irritated. And they're like, oh, this guy's great. I just stole it from somebody else. You know? <laughs> and they're like, oh, this guy's great. And, and so they think I'm like all that, and you guys don't care. So you know, it's, <laughs> I think I know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's wonderful when people do that. This kind of happens to Jesus, too. So it says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Now, here's the story I want to go with. Verse 46. Once more, he visited Canaan in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. Now, this is the background. Back in John chapter 2, Jesus goes to a wedding. His mom is somehow involved in this wedding. Uh, wedding receptions can last up to seven days. In the middle of this wedding reception, they run out of wine. And so Jesus' mom goes to him, and he, she says, do something about this. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? And she goes, something. So Jesus fills up a bunch of things with water, about 180 gallons of water, and turns it all into wine, good wine. So that's the story. He, he did that. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. Now, this is probably an official in Herod's court, heavily involved in the military and politics. He's probably very wealthy, uh, very powerful, very educated, probably very well-liked as well. And he has this boy, and his boy is sick. So he comes to Jesus. He says, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, if you are a dad, I can't imagine anything more frightening than thinking your kids could get sick and die. This dad does something that is really unheard of. He is an official. Most officials would go and say, oh, tell that rabbi to come to me. Go get that person. Bring This guy actually goes himself to go and see Jesus. He goes humbly to Jesus. The father probably takes a couple of days off work, takes a couple of days journey, maybe even on foot to go see Jesus. Jesus at this point is not uh, world renowned. He is not as popular as he is today. He is still nobody. He is a poor Jew from a poor family from a dumpy little town. And yet this respected figure, wealthy, goes humbly to Jesus to speak to him and ask him to do him a favor. Verse 48. Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. I don't think Jesus says this to be mean. I think he just states a fact. Jesus many times does miracles so people believe. 
Jesus' supernatural ministry most of the time is for non-followers to see and know of his mission, to believe in what he was doing. So Jesus says this. Their official doesn't even really pay attention to what Jesus says. He's just focused on his boy. So his royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus says this. He's like, yeah, yeah, come down to my house, please. My, my kid's dying. Jesus replied, you may go. Your son will live. Jesus speaks, and there is healing. I mean, Jesus has such authority. He doesn't need to lay hands on the boy and pray over the boy, pull everyone into a stadium, whip them into a frenzy, uh, go on TV, sell magic hankies. All he does is he speaks. He is full of authority. I mean, I am very conservative in my theology, but I do not think that God has ceased to heal people today. I still think he does that. Sometimes he chooses not to for reasons that are beyond us, but I still believe that he can. If we had our way, nobody would ever die. The world would be full of thousand-year-old people driving. (laughs) And that just would not be good. I, I, I understand the questions of, of why. I, when, when a child dies, I get that. I really do. I have done funerals for teenagers, and none of those are, are fun. But when somebody who is 70 to 90 years old dies, I think, great. That's, that's, that's a good life. That's a good life. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen God heal somebody, but it is amazing when it happens. So the father has this dilemma at this point in his life. He is probably a couple days from home, so does he believe Jesus and go home? Or does he say to Jesus, no, 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 you need to come with me in case this didn't happen. Because if he goes all the way home and the child is not healed, he's got to go all the way back and the kid will probably die by the point time he gets back. So the father has to decide, do I trust the word of Christ or do I live with doubt and worry? Which, quite honestly, is the question for all of us. Do we trust the word of Christ or do we live with doubt and worry? This guy trusts the word of Christ. And it's amazing because this man is not what we would call a believer at this point. He, he talks to Jesus, but he doesn't worship God. And yet, he trusts and sees what Jesus says. He takes him at his word. He has simple faith. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So faith is when you hear God say something, particularly through the scriptures, and then you live it as if it were true. That is faith. This guy hears, he believes, so this guy begins his journey home, he just believes, and this is one of the greatest statements, I think, in Scripture, verse 50. It says, the man took Jesus at his word. Ah, oh, if we would just take Jesus at his word. Greatest statements in all of Scripture. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was on his way, his servants met with him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and all of his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. What the father does here is he he illustrates this issue of what we call headship. So he and his whole household believed. He pulls his family together and he says, now we're going to follow Jesus. Now we're going to follow Jesus. We are Christians. Jesus healed the boy. He must be God. We're going to follow him. And this is great when a father exercises authority in this way. He takes the good news to his wife and his kids and his friends and everyone around him. We don't know the father's name. We don't know really know a whole lot about him. Except that when he trusted Jesus and Jesus heals, he took everybody around him and said, we're going to follow Jesus. That's how it's going to work. Now, it does not surprise me that Jesus would heal a little boy because we know the character of who Jesus is. I am not surprised that Jesus has the authority to heal people. But it is the father that completely captures my attention because this father is so surprising. And I want you to take this story to heart a little bit and see it in our present lens today. So I have a friend. He's one of our deacons. His name is Doug. He is a father. 
and he has like a gazillion kids. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I am going to have him share his story with you. Good morning. I'm Doug Brown. My wife Pam and I are parents to eight kids. Aaron invited me up here today to tell you about an experience that only a few people here have heard about, <clears throat> and even Aaron hadn't heard firsthand, at least till first service this morning. It's a difficult one for me to talk about. It's a very emotional memory for me to recall. About 12 years ago, our number seven child was born on May 20th, 1996. Pam had had a very normal pregnancy <clears throat> and delivery of a seemingly healthy 10-pound, 7-ounce, seven 7.5-ounce, seven actually, baby. Good, healthy-sized baby. All of our kids have been in that 10-pound range, so everything seemed normal. It's all relative. <laughs> the only indication of any early problems was the baby's inability to nurse effectively. So Pam was working with a couple of lactation consultants, Lisa Morosco and Nancy Williams. A lot of you guys probably know both of them. When the baby was 21 days of age, <clears throat> seemingly weak and little if any weight gain at that point, Lisa and Nancy both strongly urged that we take the baby back to the pediatrician again. That same day we were at the doctor's office, <clears throat> who with a fairly, seemed like a quick diagnosis, but it was pretty obvious, diagnosed her with what he called floppy baby syndrome, which is basically little to no muscle tone and no reflexes. He urged us to take her on down to Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara as soon as possible to find out what was going on. We quickly made arrangements and arrived at Cottage Hospital that evening by about 6 o'clock. They immediately admitted her into the pediatric unit <clears throat> and began a full assessment, hooking her up to heart and breathing monitors. That first night, as I sat next to her crib, she stopped breathing two different times. The monitor would go off, I would touch her, and she would start breathing again. This is probably the first time that I really had a, a feel, a comprehension of how seriously ill she really was. Early the next morning, she was seen and checked over by three different specialists, a pediatric intensivist, a pediatric, pediatric neurologist, and a pediatric cardiologist. They ordered a wide range of tests to be run on her, and by mid-afternoon, the intensivist had come back into our room with some, the results. They found that her body was not producing an enzyme that was necessary to, pro to process protein. He explained that this condition had no treatment, it was incurable, and was terminal. The word terminal is a very ominous term. We hear it at times, never with any positive connotation to it. It certainly had no place in reference to, to infants, let alone my baby. Later that evening, the intensivist returned to our room once again to tell us that the baby's condition was continuing to deteriorate and we needed to prepare to say our goodbyes. That second night, we cried and prayed much of the night as we sat and watched our baby dying. My side of it was more of a long and probably angry one-sided conversation with God, more leaning towards pleading than praying. Regardless, it was a prayer and a plea to the only source that I knew could change the current situation. I must admit, <clears throat> my expectations were not very high. I was too much of a realist. By that, I should give you a little bit of my family background. When I was 12, my second oldest brother was killed in a car accident. When I was 25, my dad was killed in a motorcycle accident. 
Then when I was 30, my oldest brother died in an airplane crash. So given that God had not intervened in these other life and death situations, my confidence really was not very high. Early the next morning, when the nurse came in to get the baby's vital signs once again, and for those of you who've been in the hospital, they bug you every two hours, and they're constantly rechecking, she was surprised to see some improvement. By 8 to 9 o'clock in the morning, two of those specialist doctors came back in to check her again, and they couldn't believe this was the same baby they had seen the day before. That 24-hour time period had had made a she had made a, a, a complete turnaround. They reran the blood work and were quite surprised to find that her body was now producing that enzyme to metabolize proteins. We brought her home two days later, still somewhat weak but otherwise recovering in an absolutely amazing way. The baby still had difficulty nursing, but with the entire family taking turns on a somewhat of a rather specialized training process, finally started nursing on her own at 11 weeks of age. Looking back, it would seem as if God allowed this whole medical community analysis and confirmation to occur in order to validate the gravity of her condition and, in turn, his miracle healing. To this day, both her pediatrician and the pediatric neurologist refer to her as the miracle baby. Only a few of us might ever see a miracle in our lifetimes, and fewer yet get to live a miracle, as I have. This miracle saved our baby's life and at the same time changed my life through a whole new awareness and appreciation of a living God in today's world. I have the absolute joy and pleasure of, of every night getting to kiss goodnight and put to bed my miracle baby. And every morning dropping her off at school. It's everyday common stuff that we do, but it has changed my life. In, in more ways than I can begin to tell you. We certainly don't know God's logic as to if or when miracles will occur, but I can only tell you that miracles certainly can and do happen in today's world. Thank you. I, I think that the picture of a father and and trust and faith and how God draws people to where they need to be to be the dads need to be is amazing. And where I'm going to go with this message may kind of drive some of you nuts, but I think it's something all of you guys need to hear. So I'm going to bring this all back together at the end, but we're just going to go and I'm going to hammer on you now. I got you in an emotional spot right now. <laughs> uh, today, our world is completely convoluted, completely uh, and I'm going to go give you two premises right here as, as we start. The first one is this, is that the gender war that was started in Genesis chapter 3 and 4 is alive and well today and even in the church today. And the second thing is that our culture breeds men that are cowards. They're afraid to take a wife. They're afraid to have children. If they do have children, they are afraid to take responsibility for those children. They're terrified of duty. We live in a world that's governed by two things, right and liberty. And we, it's my rights, my own personal happiness, no matter the cost to you. And it's my freedom. I should get what I want with the least amount of effort on my part. So we take the path of least resistance at every single turn. And for men, what this comes into is you have men that don't want to take wives. They don't want to have children. And if they do have children, they don't want to take responsibility for those children. And the story today and what you see with Doug is that these are people that are not into their rights or into their convenience. 
This guy leaves his job. He walks hundreds of miles to ask Jesus, I'm a dad. Please heal my boy. Please do something. Men, I will tell you, today, you need to drop your right and your convenience, and you need to learn this word. It is called duty. Duty. It is a good word. Duty will take you from being a boy to being a man. The boy in this story is this man's duty. And here's the thing about the gender war. I believe that feminism comes about because men are not taking their duty seriously. They oppress women. They don't honor them. Uh, they, they do all kinds of things to strip them of their identity. Men are cowards. And they do not protect a sacred trust that God gave us. And so when a bunch of men do not do their job, what happens is you begin to try and find a way to work around them. We don't call the men to their duty. We just try and work around it. And that is not good. If, if guys are Christians and they don't do their duty and they're trying to get around it, what do we do? What should we do? Tell them to do their duty. That's what you say. You say, love your wife, raise your kids, pay your bills, grow up. But we don't tell them that. We're just like, oh, we don't want to offend anybody. Well, you know what? We need to offend people. Sometimes people need to be offended. In the present day, it is a miracle for a man to marry a woman and to stay with her. In our culture, that's seen as a burden. So a man seeks to sleep with many women with the least amount of obligation. And if they do, it's like, oh, I'll wait forever even to get married. I saw this movie uh, called Fred Claus. Anybody seen that? Well, if you haven't, I'm going to give you the, the end of the movie right now. Drove me nuts because he grows up in the movie. And the very last thing he does in the movie when he grows up is he moves in with his girlfriend. That's his step of responsibility. I'm ready to throw something at my TV, but it's new, so I didn't. You know, but I'm, just, I, I'm irritated because that is what our culture breeds in people, and that is not right. I mean, if, if you are a single dude and you're looking to get married, I will tell you the very first thing you learn when you get married is that you are very selfish. You expect when you get married, this person is going to serve you and take care of you, and the other person, they're thinking the same thing. That you're going to take care of them and, and serve them. And, that, and that's how that works. The whole TV show, Sex in the City, is based on, on this premise that you don't get married because you can't trust a guy, so don't put your hopes in a relationship. In this story, there's a miracle. This, this guy gets married. The second miracle is he stays with her. Today, only 50% of people do. The third miracle is that they have a child. USA Today did this study, and they found that today, a woman spends three-quarters of her childbearing years trying not to get pregnant. Three-quarters of them trying not to get pregnant. Miracles for our day. In the story, a man got married to a woman before he sleeps with her. He stayed married to her even when it was hard. And a man actually had and raised a child. That sounds like a lot of possibilities. It's like, oh my goodness. And I know I'm being sarcastic, but we need to take this calling seriously if we ever expect things to change within our culture. Uh, 45%, it's actually almost up to 50% now, I think, of kids, they, they grow up without a dad in their home. The consequence of that happening is that these kids are five times more likely to live in poverty, ten times more likely to live in dire poverty. They have higher rates of depression, teen pregnancy, crime, suicide. And especially when it comes to boys, because if they don't get someone to assume the male role modelship in their life, they don't pick their moms. They go and they pick their friends. And boys cannot lead boys. A boy cannot teach another boy about the birds and the bees. A boy cannot teach another boy how to love a woman. That is a man's job. These kids, all together, boys and girls, are two times more likely to go to jail if they don't have a dad in their home. Kids need a dad. I mean, it doesn't matter even if it's a good dad as long as he doesn't beat them. I have talked to people in my office sometimes, and they say, well, we fight all the time. Is that better for the kids? Statistically, yes. 
It actually is. A dad is actually more valuable just by breathing. It's an amazing statistic. But a dad should be so much more. In this culture, it was a dad's responsibility to teach their children. I mean, the goal of our education system today is teach social skills and self-esteem. That, that's what they get. Among industrialized nations today, our test scores suck, you know, but uh, our kids think they're pretty tremendous. You know, our kids can't read or write, you know, but they're arrogant. <laughs> it's, it's great. And I am not knocking teachers at all because there's a lot of teachers that are totally irritated about this. And they can't stand it. The second thing a dad was supposed to do is it was their job to teach their kids about love and sexuality. So they didn't become deviants. And you teach these young men how to channel all this energy towards their future bride. Third thing a dad was supposed to do is teach their kids about God. This whole push that we have today to go into churches and, and where's your Sunday school program for my junior high and high school? I have people ask me this sometimes. Well, on Sunday morning, where's your junior high and high school class? I go, we don't have one. Why not? And I, I told them, like, it's your job. That doesn't go over well sometimes with people, but I'm totally honest about it. That's, that's the parent's job, to teach kids. It is not a youth minister or a children's minister's job. It's your job as parents, and especially as a dad. You are a pastor to your family. I mean, I'm a pastor at Element, but when you go home, you are the pastor in your home. That's you. That's you. When Sunday school actually got started, it was because there were orphans who didn't get that. They didn't have someone to teach them. And now, today, you know, a couple hundred years later, it's like, oh, everybody needs to be in Sunday school. If you would have told a dad a couple hundred years ago that his kid needed to be in Sunday school, he would have punched you in the face. And it would have been deserving because you would have said you're not doing your job. That is the difference between now, then, and today. God lays duties on men. And sometimes guys are like, well, that's a lot. Uh, yes, it probably is a lot. But if we claim to know Jesus Christ, we should live differently. If someone says, oh, I'm a Christian man, and they're not willing to do their duty, they should drop the title. They should become a non-Christian boy is what they should become. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're a guy and you hear this and you, and you think you know, loving my wife and raising a kid, does that excite you? Or does it put a pit in your stomach? That's probably a good indicator of where you're at because I pray it excites you. I really do. I mean, we look at the story of, of a man who loves his family, inconveniences himself for his son, seeks out Jesus, and today it would be a miracle because there's so much confusion about what God expects of his men. I don't ever want you confused about what I expect of you as a guy at all, ever, ever. Men, you have a duty. You know what your duty is according to Scripture? Everything. Everything. Lucky you. Especially when it comes to women. Especially, I was, I was talking to this couple of premarital counseling a while ago. Nobody in this room, so don't worry about it. I'm not talking about you. Um, so I'm talking to this guy. They're, they're both Christians. And so I, I said, well, how do you keep your boundaries straight? How do you make sure you don't cross that line so you don't have sex with her before you get married? And this is his answer to me. He says, well, I let her say no. <laughs> if you know me, that's like fighting words. <laughs> I'm like, jumping out of my chair. <laughs> I'm like, What? What? I go, I go, that is your job. That is your job. I said, how dare you put that on her? Before God, you'll be responsible for this girl. That is your job. And he's like, oh, I didn't know. And I go, now you do. <laughs> you know, no one's going to come to me for premarital counseling anymore, so this is great. <laughs> I, th I think this all directly goes to Christmas and what Christmas is about. Because God is called a father. I mean, men will never become God, but God became a man. 
And when you look at this, this is really Jesus had a duty laid upon him. Think about Jesus' humility in that. He comes as a man, as a son, as a boy with the dad. I, for you ladies, I, I know growing up a girl is difficult. I'm not one, but I, I got it, okay? I, I'm married to one, so I know. Um, but being a boy is just weird. It is. We have to, We don't know what's going on with us. It's like you grow up and things just break. It's like we have testosterone coming out of our fingers. It's like, I'll touch that. Boom, and it breaks. I'm like, what would you do? I don't know. I just, I just, I don't know. We want to figure out how things work, whether it's people or things. And, and that's why sometimes, you know, if, if you're a parent and the VCR was full of, like, cookies. It's like, there's a hole. I need to fill that with dirt or something. When I was a kid... I uh, lived in this older house, and it had uh, the, this fuse box. And it was these old fuses that looked like light bulbs. And on the back, the, you know, the, the, about the size of a light bulb, and the front is really small. Anybody ever seen? Okay. You know, nowadays, it's like, oh, the fuse blew. And you just turn it back on. These, it's like you had to screw a new bulb in. So I found this box. And I'm like, those look like light bulbs. And I go over, and I screw it in the light socket, and I go, boom. And it goes, kaboom. And there's smoke, and it was bright. And I'm like, awesome. <laughs> so, so I go back. And I take every single bulb. I'm in the I'm in the garage for hours. Boom! Just, it's great. That's what boys do. I'm telling you. Now, Jesus comes, and he comes as a boy. He comes as a boy. I mean, he went through junior high, which I know if you and I were God, we would we would skip junior high, but but he doesn't. He goes through puberty. You know, halfway to a mustache, your voice goes from Marsha Brady to Darth Vader every five seconds. <laughs> You get really excited because like, oh, I got a chest hair, and then it falls out, you know. And, and you're just like, oh, no, it's left on the towel, oh, bummer, you know. You know what to do. But see, this is the thing. God comes as a boy. He comes as a boy, and he becomes a man. It is amazing to me. And when Jesus speaks to God, he refers to him as Father. I mean, the, the, Jesus' relationship with God for us to see is a dad and his boy. The most intimate relationship that a, that a man should have is between his dad and him. And so many dads don't take that responsibility seriously enough today. Jesus is a son. He is sent into the world to eventually die for us. God's son suffers death so that we can be adopted into his household. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His Son, as His Son through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will. So God comes as a boy. He becomes a man to seek His children. And without the concept of God as Father and Jesus as Son and this idea of duty, we will misinterpret how God wills and He acts in the world, especially when it comes to a holiday like Christmas. Mark Driscoll tells this story. And... It's either in Radical Reformation or Confessions of a Reformation Reverend, but he tells this story of his first... I know, it's a, it's a mouthful. You should pick up the book, it's great. Uh, he tells the story of his first son, Zach, being born. And so they go to get the ultrasound, and they find out that they're going to have a boy. And so he prays this. He's, he starts praying, God, I want to know what it is like to be a father as you are a father and to raise a son. I want to learn through my relationship with my boy what a relationship with you is really about. So time goes on, he ends up being in the OR when his, when his son's being born, you know, and they have to do a C-section, so they pull him out, and this kid's angry. It's like, ah, you know, I am king, you're my subject, put me back in the oven, this is terrible. You know, it's, it's warm. Anyway, so the staff is like, yeah, that, that, that's a boy, 18 years of that, it's going to be fun. So, so this kid's got all kinds of stuff all over him, and they hand the boy to Mark. And he picks up his son and he says this, God, thank you so much for giving me my son, teach me what it means to be a father. 
and the baby craps on his foot. <laughs> and he says, first few diapers are like that. It's like a road tar. What did your mom feed you through that umbilical cord? I don't get it. You're a roof of house with this stuff. He goes, but he prays this. Teach me what it is like. And boom, his prayer is answered. Because that's us. That is us. We poop on God all of the time. And as, as far as you say, that's what we do. And yet God seeks us. We are adopted in. We need a dad. So God loves us and God protects us and God disciplines us and God provides for us and God seeks to change us. So we should be people that do not look to our rights but to our duty. And I don't say this in such a way that our salvation is based upon works. I say it that we should love God enough to do what he calls us to do because we will find maturity and we will find growth and health in that. This story in Scripture today, it, it's simple. It's a dad who loves his son and took care of him. That's the story of kind of human history. And we come today to celebrate one person, and that is Christ. He did a duty. He takes on the sin of the world, the sin of the world. The Father sought us. Christ died for us so we can worship God as Father. And so I want to tell you this morning, stop running from your responsibility. Do your responsibility. Embrace it. Become more and more like Christ every day because that is how the world will change. By you beginning to live missionally and living like Christ. That's one of the reasons why I come every week to communion. Because communion is all about Jesus doing this duty. He came and he died for us. It's you know the crackers representative of his body which was broken for us. So we break the cracker, we dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And we remember this, and we go and we live that out in front of people. So we worship God through communion. We worship God through prayer. If you do not know what it is like to call God your Father, to follow Christ, to learn what this duty is, pray with one of the elders in the back of the room, and they will help you. They will introduce you to Jesus Christ. And we worship God through giving these offering boxes on the side of walls in the back room, and we give back to Him because He gave to us. And we, we're going to worship God through song. We sing these songs of redemption and hope that, that God has saved us, not because we are so good, but because He is so good. And then we're going to get together. We're going to eat some cookies, and hopefully not so many of you guys puke or anything. But we're going to, we're going to eat cookies, and we're going to fellowship with each other because God, because He has restored this relationship between us and Him, we can have a relationship with other people. And that relationship with other people should spur us on to live more like Christ because now we have people around us who see the journey that we're supposed to take and they walk with it with us. We do our duty. We love Jesus. We serve and follow Christ. It is a great honor and privilege that we have been given. And so we should live it. My friend Doug is going to come back and pray for us. Oh, I am so strong. <laughs> Father God, please know that we as, as individuals, as couples, as families, and most importantly as fathers, need your guidance. We need to know that you're there. We need to know all that you can offer us and provide us. Your presence in our lives is a strength that is so comforting, and as a parent, it is such a requirement. Again, thank you for being there. Amen.